Turn with you in your Bible back to Titus chapter 2. Begin reading in verse 11. Paul writes, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Last week I tried to preach to you on salvation, past, present, and future. And we didn't get as far as I would have liked last week, but that's okay. We'll come back to it again this week. And... Um, I read from 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10 uh, this week in some of my Bible reading, and it, and it says this, Paul said of, of God, who delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. There's another place in the scriptures where Paul speaks of the God who has delivered us, the God who is still delivering us, and the God who is going to deliver us in the future, a, a salvation that is past, a salvation that is present, and a salvation that is future. In verse 11 of Titus 2, he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. It's the salvation by grace, he says, through the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. It's a past tense salvation. It's something that has happened. It happened when Christ came and died on Calvary to redeem his people. And that's happened. But then in verse 12, it says, teaching us, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. This is a present tense salvation. It's a salvation from this present world. That's where that verse ends, by talking about this present world. Paul spoke of the present evil world, the world that was, that was here, and it was full of worry. It was full of anxieties. It was full of annoyances. We talked about that last week. But it says that when grace comes into your heart, when grace appears to you, that it teaches you something, that you should, first of all, neglect a few things. And we talked about that last week, ungodliness and worldly lusts. But we're going to pick up now on what we should implement. And you know, Peter told the, the men and the women, the brethren, on the day of Pentecost when he was preaching, he said, save yourselves from this untoward generation, a crooked generation. And here I believe Paul is teaching the same thing, that here's, here's what you need to do. First of all, what you neglect or what you deny in your life, but then what you, what you implement. Notice what he says, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, there's a big difference between should live and would live, right? Now, if we were just robots that God controlled, Paul could have said we, we would live soberly, righteously, and godly. A lot of people have the idea that, that the only ones that, are, that the grace of God has actually appeared to are the ones that are living soberly, 
righteously and godly. But no, that's how you should live, but it's not how God's children will live. Paul talked about in uh, Romans chapter 7 that the things that he doesn't allow, that he wouldn't allow, those are the things he, he finds himself doing. How many of y'all have been in that position where maybe there are things you think, well, we shouldn't do that, but you find yourself, even if you're not physically doing those, you're yearning for those or lusting after those things. And so Paul begins by saying we should live this way. And most of the problems in my life come from when I should be doing something, but I'm not doing it. <laughs> and, you know, if we talk about implementing things, I truly believe that Christianity is more of following Jesus is more about what you do than what you don't do. You know, a lot of people give you a long list of here's the things that you don't need to do. And there are certainly things that Jesus even said. Like uh, he talked about the Pharisees that get up and have these long public prayers, right? So they can be seen of men or people that give their alms so they can be seen of men. And, and Jesus says, don't do those things. But, but Christianity, I believe, is more about what we're found doing than what we're not doing. Um, you know, I hesitate to say this this morning, but I know people that probably will never come in this church and they probably do things that people look down upon and, and, and they shouldn't do some of those. But they're some of the most giving people. They're some of the most, they'll give of themselves. They'll, they'll do for others. They're some of the first people that would be there if you call upon them. And, and I, believe, I believe that's just as much a sign that God has touched them than if we're in the pew today. And you know, there's people that just, for whatever reason, you know, people have bad experience with churches. You have a bad experience. It could turn you off to the church for the rest of your life. But that doesn't mean... Now, you should be there, right? That's where we should be on Sunday morning. But just because you're not there doesn't mean you won't be in heaven one day, right? Well, here he's talking about how we should live. You know, Jesus in John chapter 13 gave his, his disciples a new commandment. He said, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. That's something that you should do, Right? And then he goes on to say, say to them, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. He didn't say, all men are going to know you're my disciples if you, you know, never go to the movies <laughs> or if you, you know, never do this or never. A lot of people get the idea that I'm going to be a disciple if I never do these things but never get into the phase of real discipleship, which is actually doing what God called you to do. In Matthew 25, when Jesus returns, it says to divide the, the sheep from the goats at the end of time, he, 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 he points to the sheep and he, he begins to address the sheep and he talks about the things that they did in their lifetime. He says, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. And it's amazing the response of the sheep. They say, when did we do this? Do you see the humility in those that have been touched by the grace of God? They say, there's no way that I could be one of these. In John chapter 5, when it talks about the resurrection, it says those that have done good under the resurrection of life. See, the Bible talks a lot about what you do, not what you do not do. Even here, there's two things that we're to neglect, but he says there's three ways that we should live. And the first of those, he says, is soberly. You want to implement a lifestyle of, of sobriety. That means to live your life 
with a healthy mind, with a sound mind, knowing right from wrong. Um, so important in our world to be living soberly that you're not, um, you know, we're, we, we, people are, are so on so many extremes in our, in our world, aren't they? You can be on the extreme left or the extreme right. When it comes to religion, you can become very extreme on certain points of doctrine. But we're to live soberly. We're to, notice this. This is very interesting. And maybe this is a call to young men. In, in this very chapter, when, when Paul is teaching Titus the things that he is to teach the older men and the, and the older women that they're to teach, and then they're to go on and teach the younger women and the younger men which is a beautiful picture of how the church should work, the older teaching the younger so that when the younger become the older, they'll teach the younger, and it just goes on from age to age. Isn't that beautiful? Notice about the, the younger women. It says in verse 4 that they would teach the younger women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, Keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husband. That's eight things. He says that the word of God be not blasphemed. There's eight things that the, the older women are to teach the younger women. Then in verse 6, he moves on to what the young men are supposed to learn. And he says, young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. One thing. And he moves on. I've often thought that Paul was probably saying, if you can get a young boy... <laughs> To be sober-minded, you've done enough. <laughs> and he moves on to Titus. But sobriety, you know, not, not acting extremely, not going to extremes, um, that is much needed in the church. It's much needed in young men. It's, and, and it's something that only comes through a relationship with the church of God and with God and pressing into the doctrines of God, the grace of God, because the grace, see what seeing the grace of God and what God has done for us, Paul is saying that is the way that we live soberly, right? When we when we when we see how wicked we were, when we see how how, how much debt we owed, and then we see the grace of God that saved us from God Himself. You know, we've been saved from the wrath that God was going to deliver to those that have disobeyed Him. When we see that, that brings a certain sobriety to our life, right? That we should live differently. That we should, we should be sober. And so He says, you need to implement sobriety into your life. Then He says, righteously. Righteousness. That we should live righteously. And that, that is to do, that, that is to live doing what is right. It's in the very word, righteously. You look it up in a dictionary, it'll say equitable equitableness to live with equity doing what is right to others you know that's what that's what equity is right doing what is right to other people uh, not trying to take advantage of other people not showing partiality to other people that's a that's a that is a buzzword that we hear today is equity right if you're i bet if you're in college if you're in high school they're talking about equity if you're in a corporate environment you hear a lot about equity um, if you watch the news, or you're going to hear a lot about equity, inclusion, these different things. But biblical equity a lot of times is different than the equity that the world is pushing on. You see, the world today is saying equity is this. Let's, um, let's pull down these people 
so we can lift up these people, right? And what they're trying to do is, is create a, a equity or an equality of outcomes where everybody has the same thing. It's this, it's really socialism. It's really from the devil. <laughs> it's what destroys societies. And, um, and it is destroying our society. But that's not biblical equity. Equity is not a bad word. Equity just means doing what is right to other people. See, in an equitable society, we wouldn't be destroying one person or, or, or taking one group of people and putting them at a disadvantage so that we could advantage another group of people. We'd just be doing right by everybody, right? Treating people the right way that they need to be treated. We would, we, we would just be doing the golden rule, right? Isn't that what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7? Whatever you, you know, he, he says, um, therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do unto them, right? That's the golden rule. Y'all think we'd be a lot better off if we all lived like that? Would husbands and wives be better off if they lived like that? <laughs> Siblings, would they be better off if they lived like that? Church members, our world. And well, here's what. Paul is teaching Titus. He says that when you press into the grace of God, when it's appeared unto you, when you begin to learn more about Jesus and what he's done for you, it teaches you that you should live righteously. You should do what is right. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8 says this, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly? That is to do what's right to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. You say, what, is, what does God require of me? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. John Gill on this verse says of, of doing justly, I love this, to hurt no man's person, property, or character, to give to everyone their due, and do as he would desire to be done by. You know, to live in such a way that you don't do others harm. That is, what it, that is what it means to live righteously, to do justly, to live equitably. It's, it's to live in such a way that you don't harm others. And then he says, and godly in this present world. Now, if you remember, he said we were to neglect or reject denying ungodliness. And ungodliness was to live with a lack of reverence or fear or regard for God. That you don't respect God's ways, that you don't respect God's word, that you don't respect the institutions that God has created. It's, it's, it's a hallmark of a reprobate mind or society or, or people that there's no fear of God before their eyes. A depraved people. The Bible would say that. Well, here he says, when, you, when the grace of God appears to you and begins to teach you, it shows you that you should live godly and as opposed to ungodliness, to live godly is to live with a healthy respect for God. That you, you, you wake up in the morning with a proper respect for God in your public life, in your private life, that you're doing things agreeable to the will of God. You're living, a God, you're living in a godly way. That's what it means to, to, to live in a godly home. Like we, you know, I've tried to establish a godly home. We want to be a godly church. We want to be, you ever heard somebody say that's a godly man or a godly woman? That doesn't mean they're perfect. That doesn't mean they make all the right decisions. 
But what that really means is that is someone who has a healthy respect for God. They, they appreciate what God has done for them. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of, of, of wisdom. And, and you know, the Bible says that a fool rejects those things. So when you see the grace of God, you'll begin to understand, I want to have a proper respect for what God has done for us and for God's ways and for God's institutions. And so if we're going to, if we're going to live in this present world, this present tense salvation, this now salvation, this salvation from this crooked generation, we're going to have to neglect certain things, irreverence for God, worldly lust, and implement sobriety, righteousness, and godliness, because that's in this present world. Now let's go to verse 13. Remember, this is salvation, past, present, and future. Now we're going to look at our future salvation, what we're looking to. Remember from 1 Corinthians, we, we quoted that earlier where he says, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. You know, God has delivered us through the, the death of his son. Uh, he, 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 in a sense, he delivered us before the world began when he chose us out of Adam's fallen race, right? And, and there's no doubt, there's no one here today that could say that God hasn't delivered them in times of need in this life. Um, you know, there's so many times that we uh, a now salvation that we need to be delivered. And, and one of the keys to, be deliver, to being delivered now is looking to the deliverance that's yet to come, right? And so Paul says in verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This, this future salvation, it, it has to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ. That is just as much a salvation as when Christ died on the cross. See, the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to be the culmination of salvation, right? You will need no more salvation after Jesus comes again. You won't need to be delivered from this crooked world because the crooked world will be gone. <laughs> You won't need to be delivered from yourself. A lot of times I like to blame the devil and, and the world and society, but really it's me that I need to be delivered from. <laughs> I look forward to the day when I don't have to be delivered from Josh. <laughs> and the second coming of Jesus Christ, it, it is, if, if the cross was the, the central focus point of all history, <laughs> The next, the next point is his, is his second coming. The first advent was what we all look back to. The second advent is what we should all be looking forward to, right? We spend a lot of time looking back on the second advent, think, or the first advent, thinking about uh, how he lived and what he did, and that's very good. But if you're like me, you, you probably go days. You probably go... There's many times when you, you wake up in the morning, you don't think about it. You, you go through the hustle and bustle of life and, and you never think about he's coming back, right? You think about what he did. Uh, a lot of us are just gripped on this present world. And, and a lot of that is because, probably because, in theory, we can talk about a present evil world, but in practice, 
we're living differently than most people through human history, right? We've got Advil. <laughs> I had a headache last night. Uh, we'd, we'd been outside all day, most of the day, and I guess I was, maybe I was dehydrated, I don't know, but I got a headache. And you know the first thing I did? Walked upstairs, took an Advil. I don't know, when, when was Advil created? Does anybody know? It probably wasn't that long ago, right? In the grand scheme of things. I don't know, 100 years ago, I probably couldn't have taken my Advil and, and laid down on the couch and rented a movie from my TV. <laughs> It's hard to long for a better world when you have it so safe and secure and good here, isn't it? And, and I struggle with that. And I'm sure you struggle with that. Uh, but you know what? It could come a time where it means a lot more to us. Um, there could come a time where we, we, we long to be delivered. And you know, it's, it's, I don't know if you're like me, but it's funny. It's funny to me how quickly I can get into the mindset where I long to be delivered from. It won't take much. I woke up, we, we, we went with my in-laws, whole family to Gatlinburg um, back around Christmas. And, and I woke up once again with a headache. <laughs> Terrible headache, migraine. I went through a few, a few months last year where I was having migraines and and that culminated with me passing out like an old man and breaking my back. Y'all remember that? <laughs> and and the doctor, I've been through a list of doctors and they finally, you know, this is the best thing they could tell me. You need to drink more water. <laughs> Think about that. Something God just gave us could have fixed all that. Hadn't had a migraine in months. I've been drinking a lot of water. <laughs> But I, it was like 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to tell you, don't get sick in Gatlinburg, Tennessee at 2 o'clock in the morning. There's not a CVS or a Walgreens or an urgent care within an hour. At one point, I, Carrie's made fun of me. At one point, I thought, well, Lord, you can just take me. My head's hurting. <laughs> there was no Advil. And I didn't really mean that. But I was, I was longing to be delivered, right? Well, I get there's people here today that maybe they have it really good, yeah, in a financial way or a comfort way, but let's say you're struggling with some kind of chronic pain. Chronic pain. Maybe some kind of chronic or habitual mental pain, or, or maybe somebody's done something to you. Well, I can see how you would long for something better, right? You long to be delivered. And maybe... I can't, or the church can't deliver you from that pain, whether it be mental or physical. But there's something you can look to that will help with the pain, right? And he says, looking for that blessed hope. Don't y'all love the way he talks about it's a happy hope? I like looking forward to something good, do y'all? I read one time that the key to having a happy life is to always have a vacation planned at some point in the future. <laughs> you can be looking forward to it, right? I like to be looking for that blessed hope. I went to the doctor a few years ago. And you know how every time you go to the doctor, you have to fill out the same form? And um, I'd never seen this question. It, started, it asked a lot of questions about, 
you know, is there anything you're sad about or down about? And then one of the questions was, is there anything you're looking forward to in the future? <laughs> that was a good question, wasn't it? And like a weirdo, <laughs> I don't know why I did this. I put, yes, I'm looking forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, and I bet they thought, this is a weird guy. <laughs> But I was looking forward to that. You know, the second coming of Jesus can be confusing. Y'all ever heard somebody maybe on TV or the radio talk about the second coming of Jesus and you, and you stop listening to them and you're more confused about Jesus' coming than when you turned it on? People will say, are you a premillennialist or a postmillennialist or an amillennialist? I was having breakfast with Brother Greg recently, and I, I guess I was trying to sound intelligent, and I started explaining the differences between all those, and by the end, I was confused on which one was which. <laughs> I'm just glad he's back. <laughs> um, people say, are you a dispensationalist? Um, people say, where do you, in, you know, in, in Revelation 20 and verse 2, the binding of Satan of a thousand years, where do you place that in human history? Well, I've got, I've got ideas on all that, but the second coming can be confusing. I found on Wikipedia this week, there's a, there's, a, there's a page on Wikipedia titled, Unfulfilled Christian Religious Predictions. It's got a list of them. Now, this isn't unfulfilled prophecies from the Bible. This is extra biblical prophecies from men throughout the ages that have said, Here's what's going to happen on this date or at this time period, and that time period comes and goes, and it didn't happen. There was a NASA engineer. I found him this week, Edgar Wisenant. And, and he, was, he was a former NASA engineer. He started writing on the Bible. And in the 80s, he wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And it sold over 5 million copies, it said. And then 1988 came and went. <laughs> I think he wrote another book. I, did, I couldn't find how many copies that sold. <laughs> but it can be real confusing to people because five million people got a copy of that book. And I don't know how many of those people thought it was true, but there's, there's probably stands to reason that a, that, that a good portion of those people, whether it be 10% of 5 million people, there were people that were thinking, 1988 is it. And then it didn't happen, and it leaves people confused, right? Charles Spurgeon, speaking of the book of Revelation, he calls it the apocalypse. Listen to this. He said, only fools and madmen are positive in their interpretations of the apocalypse. <laughs> you get a man in here who says, I'm going to teach you the book of Revelation. This is exactly how it's going to happen. Well, the Prince of Preachers said he's either a fool or a madman. <laughs> it can be scary for some people. They think about the end of the world. And a lot of people say, are, are, you know, are you ready for Christ's coming? Um, they'll talk about secret raptures or being left behind, and that scares people. I've known people who were scared, and, and many of God's children are scared. I'm going to give you my eschatology here. You've heard this before. This is from Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4. 
It says, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear. What are we talking about? Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul says to the Colossians, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Isn't that simple? Now, there, there may be bad things that come our way. There, there's definitely signs. Um, but I'll tell you this, this. I believe this all my heart. We're living in the last times. <laughs> now, we've been living in the last times since Christ was on earth, since he went back to heaven. And I don't know how long it's going to last, but I know this. At some point, he's going to appear. And then will we appear with him in glory? That's when glorification, when we read about Romans chapter 8, will happen is when He appears. Then will we appear with Him in glory. The second coming of Jesus Christ shouldn't be something that confuses us or scares. I don't think God intended, I don't think God intended to give us His Word and preserve His Word so that we could be always confused about His second coming. But you say, Brother Josh, you just said there's things you don't understand. Right. I pray that God will give me more light on those and maybe I'll understand them better as time goes on. But I don't think God called us to just be confused about it, but go to the, the places in Scripture where it is clear about His second coming. And there are some... Listen, listen to um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Brother Sam Bryant used to say, you all need to memorize this portion of Scripture because somebody's going to read it at your funeral. <laughs> now think about that. He says in verse 16... First, uh, First Thessalonians chapter four, verse sixteen: For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now listen to verse eighteen. Speaking about the second coming of Christ to this church, Paul says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. When I think of being comforted, I, I often think about getting comfortable, you know. Uh, maybe you talk about going to bed at night or getting on the couch to relax. You get comfortable and, and you kind of want to go to sleep, right? You want to wind down. That's not what Paul is talking about when he's saying comfort one another with these words. When he says comfort one another with these words, he means to, to talk about and look to the second coming in such a way that you strengthen each other and you invigorate each other. You cheer, you cheer one another up. You enliven, you enliven one another with the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's not what that word comfort means here. That you, you, it's to invigorate us. It's to cause us to be more zealous for the cause. It's to cause us to be... Uh, more zealous about loving our, our neighbors and, and loving our spouse or our children or our church. Uh, it's, it's the second coming of Jesus Christ is what the early church, that's what the early church was looking to. They weren't looking forward to their beach vacation, right? They weren't looking forward uh, to, to going uh, to, to Disney World or going on that cruise. Nothing wrong with that. I, I'm glad we can enjoy that. But the early church didn't have that. They were probably looking to losing their livelihood, uh, being uh, ostracized from society. Many of them were looking at being martyrs for the cause, but they were, they were more zealous than we have ever thought about being. 
And all they had to do was all they had. I say all they had like it's nothing, but that's that's all they had was to look forward to Christ coming back to get them. And so Paul says, if you want to you want to be delivered here, you need to you need to focus your mind and your eyes on the future salvation that is to come. Look, he says, looking for. That means, and that that literally means expecting. Not not looking in such a way that that you're doubting if it's going to happen, right? But looking, just waiting for it to happen. (laughs) Expecting it. Jesus... um, it was John 14 where he says, if I, he's talking about going to prepare a mansion uh, for his people. He says, if, if I go to prepare that mansion, I believe it's verse three, he says, I will come again so that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus promised it. So we can wake up every morning expecting that one day that's going to be fulfilled. That's what it means to be looking for it. That, that, that happy hope, that future Good. Where we're, where there, there will come a time where this world will not be present and evil, but there'll be no tears, there'll be no war, there'll be no death. There will always be peace. And, and I want to I close with this. Look, it says, and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, that's not two different... People, Jesus Christ is the great God, right? Jesus Christ is God. And he says we're looking for his glorious appearing. And when he says glorious, he's talking about a majestic appearing. It's the the, the word that was translated glorious comes from a Greek word that means honor, means to revere it's it's used for kings and queens you know if you see a movie or you may see the the king of england that will come through they'll call him your majesty right when he appears that's what paul's talking about here that we're looking for we're expecting the return of our king isn't that amazing when jesus was born he was born in a manger, right? There's no room for him in the end. He's born in a manger with the other livestock. But if you think about it, that was an appropriate way. I mean, that's not the way we would expect the Savior and the King to come. But if you understand that he was the Lamb of God, it makes sense. Where, where's a lamb born? In a manger, right? among the livestock. And so at his first advent or his first appearing, it kind of makes sense. The Lamb of God. He came as the Lamb of God. That was his purpose. That was why he came the first time. But what we're looking for, that blessed hope, we're not looking for Christ to come back the second time to a manger or to live among humble, lowly people. What we're looking for at his second return is a king who's coming back victorious. A king who's riding on his horse with his trumpet 
with his army coming back victoriously to stamp out the last enemy and take the kingdom up to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24 through 26 says this, Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Jesus isn't coming back to be crucified again, is he? Jesus is coming back to deliver his people and his kingdom to the Father where all will be together and all will be united and he will, have, he will get all the praise for the victory. And every when he comes back, I believe every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, some voluntary and some involuntary, some, some willfully and some against their will. But there's coming a time when even those who mock and ridicule the King of Kings will have to acknowledge this is God. This is the King. And I'm going to tell you, as, as, as you look at a world that's not as friendly to Christians as it once was, that mocks you at, at school or at home or at work, wherever it may be, for living a life trying to submit to Christ as King, and you're not, you're not praised for it. Matter of fact, you, you become ridiculed for it or outcast from society for it. It's going to become a lot more important that we start expecting our glorious King to come. Aren't y'all looking forward to that day? I don't know what, exactly what it's going to be like. But it's going to be amazing, isn't it? It's going to be wonderful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, that you saved us, that you didn't leave us on our own. You gave us your word. You gave us your church. You gave us other people, other believers, people in the church to strengthen us, invigorate us when we're down. And not only that, you're coming back to get us. Lord, we look forward to the day when you come back victorious, when the army of heaven is released and you, not on a, not on a donkey with palm branches, but you come back as a king. We know today you are the king. We know that you are reigning today. But we're looking forward to the day when it is manifest here on earth that we are resurrected from the grave or if we're alive that we see it and that we meet you in the air and we ascend together and we are made glorious and we are rendered excellent and when you appear we appear with you in glory we can't begin to imagine what it is like but we know you told that thief on the cross, that today you'll be with me in paradise. Help us to be content with knowing that one day we are going to paradise. Where there'll be no tears, 
And there'll be no death. And there'll be no sorrow. There won't be chronic pain or depression or anxiety. We will be freed from all those burdens. And we will cast our crowns at your feet and sing a new song about how you are worthy. Because you took the book and you opened the seals and it was your blood that redeemed us out of all kindreds and families and tribes and nations. And we will honor you, Lord, as we should. For the first time, we will empty our praise before your throne. We look forward to that day when we could worship you as we should. We come today and we worship you as broken people. And we pray, God, that you'll accept that. But we look forward to the day when we worship you as we should. We look forward to your second coming. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll sing a hymn at this time, give an opportunity if there's anyone that would like to unite with, with the church to come forward and, and let that request be known. Well, Joshua, do you have a song? We'll sing number 174. Thank <laughs> you.